please pray with me. Father, in the words of the songs that we've just sung, we are attempting once again to give you the rightful place. We revere you. We love you. And yet, Father, we know that so many times our words and our actions and our thoughts betray the very things that we've just sung. We've propped other things in your place. We've put our hope in other things. We've believed in ourselves instead of you. We've grasped for other ways to satisfy our longings. Father, we repent. And as we gather and come back to your word again and again and again, Father, make us new, wash us. Reveal your truth to us. Once again, claim an undivided heart within us. Father, we are weak and we are broken and we need you. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, Running with the Horses, famous pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson, in one point in time, describes this process of discipleship and sanctification within our lives, similar to that of the way a parent swallow teaches its baby how to fly. That each one of us will always cling so tightly to the things that we already know and the places of comfort in our life where we've already been, that we will never venture forth into places of the unknown, that we will never know and experience what it means to soar in faith because we will always hold on to what we already know. He talks about the debate between even a bird's ability to fly as something that is either nature or nurture. Do they actually, certain species, learn how to fly because they're actually taken to the edge and actually pushed off at one point in time by their parent, where the parent actually kicks them off the edge of the branch? <laughs> Similar to what it would have been experienced by most of you had you stayed home and not gone to college with your parents. Get out and go and spread your wings. A loving parent bird actually is so enamored with their child and the ability for this chick to accomplish what it was designed in this world to do that when they first come back with food, they feed them in the nest. The swallow then will take them further out of the nest and make them reach for them. And in their growth, they'll move further back and make them come out of the nest and come to them to receive the food that they give them. And eventually, they'll take them to the end of a branch when it's time to fly and become what it is that they were designed to be. Because if you are born with hollow wings and feathers all over your body and wings on your arms, you're not meant to stay inside of a nest. You're meant to fly. And so they take them out to the edge. And if they won't go and let go of themselves, a parent, almost like a cartoon moment, will begin to peck at their toes until the last little piece is let go and they begin to fall. And sometimes it's only in our fear of falling in the place of the unknown where we ever learn how to soar in faith. Sometimes the hardest voices and the hardest things that we're challenged with are the very things designed to take us there. And sometimes God does that in all sorts of ways in our life and people around us. Today in this journey we've been taking through the minor prophets, we hit a new stage, a new chronological chapter in the unfolding of Israel's history. By the time we get to the book of Haggai, the exile has actually been completed and the people of God have come back from exile. And as you'll remember from last week, the question for everyone to be asking at this point of time is, did the exile take? Did it work? God kept rattling Israel's cage. God took them and fed them and was trying to grow his child, brings her to the edge of the branch. When she won't let go, pecks at her feet long enough, 
and sends her out. And we're trying to find out now, did Israel learn how to soar on the wings of faith? Did, they, it is, did the exile take? Did it work? And so we come to the book of Haggai now. I'm going to read the opening 11 verses from this book with you. With a question in mind, did it take? Are they soaring now? In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and timber and build the house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy in his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the olive oil and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Now normally, this is the one passage in Scripture that always gets pulled out at the beginning of a church's new capital campaign. When there is money to be raised, this is the passage you want to preach. Why should you get to invest in all the things of you when you haven't paid attention to the Lord's house? It's a compelling message. This stuff preaches for money. But at the end of the day, I'm not really sure that's the full extent of the meaning of the passage. Let's recapture the context and what's happened here for Israel. They've been in Babylon. They've been in captivity. And you'll remember that when the captivity came, the poorest of the poor were left to work the land, enslaved to be able to produce bounty for the country ruling over them. The wealthy and elite are all taken off to Babylon. Now when this decree is issued by Cyrus that the people can go free and go back to Israel, those who have been successful in Babylon, those who have acquired land and wealth and married and established connections, don't come back. It's the lower middle class that returns back. Ezekiel tells us about 50,000 in number go back after the exile. So this is the remnant, right? We were putting hope in. This was the remnant we are hoping would be refined, that the exile took. It did what it was supposed to do. Israel was falling, and it learned how to fly in this process, and then they come back. The problem is, is that these 50,000 some odd people come back and now the lower middle class with the lower lower class together are supposed to build a nation. Well, when you've been gone for 70 years and come back, your farmland has gone fallow. Your homes have become a place of disrepair. The, ec- the economy is completely depressed. And you fear subjugation again by other countries and rulers all around you. 
Not only that, there's other indications from Scripture that the people who come back are fighting with those who stayed because now there's land disputes on whose land is actually whose and what family has what, and they're having a hard time getting along with each other, and it's hard work trying to make a go out of it in a depressed economy when there's not a lot of resources, and all the educated and all the wealthy people are still living in another country, and you're supposed to build, rebuild a nation out of this. So that's the situation. The problem is, is Haggai now is speaking at a time, 19, almost 20 years after they've come back, and nobody has paid any attention to the temple. It's been ruined and nobody is investing in this. And the question really Haggai is asking in this passage isn't, why aren't you investing in the temple? But why are you investing in the temple that you are? Why are you investing in yourselves and in your own ability to hang on a little tighter, to to make something of yourselves in the midst of this? Did the exile not take? Have you still not learned how to soar, that you were not made to hold on to this? You were made to soar on the wings of faith. And so I'm not, God knows at this point in time, Israel does not have all the resources. This is not like when the first temple was built and David had accumulated and become Israel's the superpower of the world. And they had all this wealth in their treasuries. And then Solomon goes forth and builds this magnificent structure out of great wealth and opportunity. And now God's asking Israel, you've got nothing, right? You come back, you are poor. You are the mockery of other nations the way that you've been shamed before the world. You were angry. You were despairing. And now you come back. And now, God, you're going to ask us to build a temple again? Why does God do this to his people? It almost seems unfair, doesn't it? But as is always the case, God's laws are not born out of concern for him, but for us. They are gifts to us. The command to build a temple here is an instruction to the Israelites to take themselves outside of themselves and to free themselves from the self-interest that they have. One more time again, this is where they go. They're tunneling back in on themselves. Give careful thought to your ways. Haggai says five times this chorus comes in this book, twice in this passage. Give careful thought to your ways. Is this working for you? Is the question that's being asked? This sort of buckling down and trying to do it all your own. Is it, how's that going for you? Is it working? So what sounds and would look like in the eyes of the rest of the world, God, we're struggling here, so you're going to put one more thing, a really incredibly hard thing on top of this? But this is what the love of God does for us. This is what the path of discipleship and sanctification always looks like. This is why God pecks at the feet of the Israelites at the end of the branch, because they need to fall. And once again back, God is not leaving them alone. I need to pull you outside of yourselves, left to your own devices. Once again, you will invest in the things of the world. You will invest in the law of diminishing returns. This is what you do. This is how your heart works. And this is the problem, right? Jeremiah said this at the beginning of his passage too. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me and they've dug their own wells. They've ignored me and now they're investing in themselves instead. Now, post-exile, it's the same problem. It's the same people. It's the same heartache. And we are still in the same place. I thought about the irony of this. Haggai speaking to these people whose net worth is not really all that impressive and asking them to build a temple. And here I am standing in front of a bunch of college students who probably don't have the highest net worth in the world right now. 
And God's asking you to build a kingdom. Well, how do you do that? When you have nothing. When you are broken. When you have more debts than assets. How do you do that? Don't ever let anybody lie to you and tell you that while you were in college, you do not need to be investing in the things of the kingdom of God. That you should not be giving financially, that you should not be investing your time, because it's not about those things. It's about the orientation of our hearts. At the end of the day, can we really build, could they really have built a temple that would actually impress God? That they get done and God's like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I'll take all your little grubby goodness and I'll put it up on my fridge like my little kindergartner comes home with their work. Well done, right? Like I'm pleased. But why? Why is God asking them to do this? Listen in verse 2 of the passage. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Whenever you and I feel pressure in life, whenever you and I have our backs against the wall, whenever we feel financially constrained, giving and moving beyond ourselves is the hardest thing to do. You sit at night struggling about a test that's supposed to be coming the next day, and the hardest thing to do, right, is to move beyond yourself and think about somebody else who might be struggling even worse than you in that moment. We become so preoccupied with ourselves, and God tries to pull us out beyond it. That's the point of giving. It's not that God needs our money. It's not that God's going to be impressed with whatever it is that we build. It's that God is giving us the gift of saving us from ourselves. And he's doing the same thing now with these people being brought back, saying, don't start walking down the pattern that your forefathers went. It's been 20 years now, and you're still believing that your satisfaction is going to come if you just buckle down further. I need you to do the exact opposite. I need you to invest in me, and I need you to move beyond yourself. I need to take you to a place of faith, and I'm going to push you off the edge, and in the fear of falling, you're going to learn the joy of soaring. And I know that you can't see it right now and you haven't experienced it. You haven't flapped wings. You've never flown before. You don't know what it feels like. But trust me, God says, I've been down roads you have not. My love is bigger than your love for yourself. You need to believe that I know how to build this kingdom through you better than you do yourselves. And so lovingly, graciously, God pushes us off the end of the branch again and again in order to shape us and to teach us how to fly. Consumerism's curse is that we're asked to eat that which will never satisfy. To clothe ourselves with things, and you've always experienced this before, the purchase hangover the next day after you've bought something, or buyer's remorse, call it whatever you want, where that thing that you thought was going to make you so happy a little while later doesn't, and the new cell phone that you bought six months ago now seems like old and passe because the next big thing is coming down the pipe, and our lives are built on this assumption that if we just had, and we just had, and we just had a little bit more, and apparently it was a problem already six centuries before Christ came, and longer even before that, and we're having the same problems again today, so these words still speak and they still preach and they still need to tell us how it is that we need to respond to God because listen to what God says in this passage at the end God's bringing forth a drought on these people in order so God's telling them the way for you to get outside of yourself is not that I'm going to make your life easier in fact I'm going to make it harder I'm going to take you to your breaking point because apparently you haven't hit your bottom yet so I know you're all struggling, I know you're all poor, and now I'm going to give you a drought. And guess what? I'm giving you a drought. And don't try to blame this on anything else. I did it. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains. And on all the labor of your hands, 
it won't produce. You can't take a self-interested model and temple of living, lay it before God, and keep asking him to bless it, bless it, bless it. It is not in his nature. He cannot do it. He loves you too much to let your life be built on those false premises. He loves you way too much. And we live in a day and an age where it's probably harder to do this than ever before because we can access things and we have access to affluence and wealth and opportunity and instant gratification like nobody else before us in the history of the world. So this message is probably even harder for us in some ways. Somebody once said this, the chief cause of unhappiness is trading in what you want most for what you want in the moment. If I were to ask anybody here what it is that you want most out of life, you know how to speak Christianese. You're in college. You know the, an- the answer I'm looking for, right? And yet at the end of the day, our actions and our thoughts, they betray this. And if people were to look at our lives and see that we're actually investing in a different hope plan, when you have ambitions and dreams and what motivates you in your studies and in all the aspects of life, it, it, what is it? What actually drives you most? And are you and I, time and time again, trading in what we want most for what we want in the moment? It's the question of God to His people in this passage. People of, that Haggai is speaking to his audience end up responding. They do. They build the temple. But the interesting thing is, is there's not a passage in Scripture that ever tells us that the Shekinah presence of God ever returns to the second temple. Remember that presence that led them out of the Exodus, right? The fire, the cloud, and then when the temple finally gets built, it descends and the people could see it and the manifest presence of God is with his people. In the second temple, it never comes. And the people of God are left asking, when will the God come back to his temple? When will God inhabit and indwell His temple again so the world can see that God reigns in Jerusalem and in the midst of the Israelites? And then the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And Christ Himself comes not in a cloud, not in fire, but as God made flesh within us. And then when He leaves, now the Shekinah presence comes back to Jerusalem in the tongues of fire, in the Pentecost moment, in the people of God. And guess what the New Testament people afterwards describe as the new temple of God? You and I. We are the manifest presence of God to the world. Each one of us is building and constructing a temple that is telling the rest of the world, this is what I worship. These are my gods. And if you were to ask me why the, why the strength of the witness and the authority of the Christian message in America has dwindled today, I would tell you it's because the rest of the world is watching our lives and we have betrayed our God and we are declaring that there's something else that occupies the place of, what our, of the apple of our eye. We don't look different enough. We don't trace ambitions and dreams that are built on the inbreaking of the kingdom We're like the people of the Old Testament again and again and again who keep trying to hold on so tightly to the things around us instead of learning to be what we were truly made for and just fly on the wings of faith. You were called to fly. You were made for it. In the same way that a bird is made with hollow bones, feathers on its body, and wings that spread, it was made to fly. You were made to live by faith. You were not made to live by the work of your hands. 
And when we do that in passages like this, we're reminded by God that he says, I cannot bless it. I cannot do that. We want to be blessed. We want to stand in the place of blessing. We want to stand in the place of fruitfulness. You want to have your life absolutely designed around what it is that you were made for. That the temple of you and me would declare a manifest presence of God in our midst, in us, through us. There is one God worshipped in this heart, right? There is one statement of faith being made in this life in which I'm putting my hope in and my belief that will bring about my happiness. May your life proclaim that message clearly. May you be given an undivided heart. May you not cling to the branch, never learning how to fly. And if you're hanging on too long, may God kick you out and peel back your little claws and let you fall so you can learn what it is that you were made for. May you be the people of God. May you soar. That's what you were made for. Please join me in prayer. Father, I ask for your blessing on this place and for every one of your disciples here. Father, we've gathered because we have divided hearts. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. All of us have propped up idols at different times in your place. All of us have placed our ambitions and our dreams on something other than you. Father, heal our broken hearts. Teach us to fly. Teach us to live a faith that speaks a message so easily recognizable to everyone that our hearts are not divided. Father, may you convict us of all the places where we've traded you in for something else. Father, reignite the work of your Spirit within us. Till over new places of soil in our hearts that we've yet to hand over to you. Teach us to soar in faith. Teach us to be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Have a great day.